Welcome to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this week's message from Hoffmantown Church. Hey, we've got some difficult things to walk through this morning. I wanted to lighten it up a little bit. Because <laughs> the truth is, we are in the end times, folks. I mean, if you doubt that, just look around, right? There's no question uh, that we've got some challenging days ahead. I don't care who gets elected into office, that's the truth. Do you know the truth is we don't lose hope. The truth is Christ is on his throne. He hasn't fallen off. <laughs> he didn't wake up this morning. He didn't have to because he never sleeps. He never slumbers. And in the midst of it all, we have the privilege of experiencing him day by day by day to be transformed into his image. We're starting the last part of this series. Can you believe it? Uh, what a year. I'll tell you, this has been an unreal year in so many different ways, personally as well as corporately, and just, um, wow, can't even, it's just impossible to put it all into words. But we're going to start this last part of going through the Bible in terms of the end times. Eschatology, that's the fancy word, right? The study of the end times. And what do we believe about that? Because folks, I, I do believe that God is coming back soon. We're going to cover a lot of stuff over the next few weeks uh, the Schaefer uh, seminar is going to be awesome. Pastor Andy Wood is going to bring a message in a couple of weeks in terms of rewards in heaven and what does that look like biblically. I think there's a lot of confusion on that, and uh, it'll be interesting to walk through that part. But there's so many, so many different things. Let me just give you a bit of a list. When we talk about the revelation of Jesus Christ, the apocalypse, we're talking about the uncovering, the unveiling of the Lord Jesus Christ. The revelation. We've seen him for who he is in terms of his coming to this earth and the recognition of grace and truth being realized through him. Uh, but there's coming a point where he's going to come again, and it comes in two parts. He's going to come at the rapture. He's also going to bring the saints with him, and he's going to bring judgment. And so when we talk about the end times, we're talking about a time of significant tribulation, a time where in the midst of all these things, this earth is going to be judged. Sin is going to be judged. Unbelievers are going to be judged. There's going to be death and there's going to be famine and there's going to be wars and it's going to be horrific. There's the rapture of the church, which folks, I believe, is prior to the tribulation or if you want to put it in technical terms, Daniel's 70th week, which we're going to look at. There's the day of the Lord, the day of Christ. It's kind of a two-track two moment. One's for unbelievers and the judging of sin and the judging of unbelievers, the other's for believers, the day of Christ. So it encompasses the, the supper feast of the Lamb and all the different factors there for believers. Both of them start at the same moment. Both of them are ages. They're not just a particular day. Both of them have agendas for two different separate groups of people. Daniel's 70th week is what I talked about, the seven-year period of time that normally we call the tribulation. It includes the tribulation, the first three and a half years. It includes the great tribulation, the last three and a half years. The Antichrist, the false prophet, the beast, the abomination of desolation, which takes place at the very middle of Daniel's 70th week. The Bema seat of Christ, or believers, are rewarded or our work is tested. The great white throne judgment, Armageddon, 
the millennium, the thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth. And I believe that that is literal. I do not believe that is, uh, we can spiritualize it or make it figurative. We are not in the millennium right now. Some people want to believe that. Some people don't believe in a millennium at all. They believe in spiritualizing it. I believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth from Jerusalem where we will rule and reign with Christ. We will serve him on earth. Satan's imprisonment and release, Gog and Magog, the new heaven, the new earth, the new age. My goodness, there is so much in this, it's indescribable. We're going to take a 30,000-foot view in effect. Next year, we're going to walk through Revelation and look at what does God have to say to us, to the people of God, as we walk through these times. Today, I'm going to cover a little bit of why do we believe that we're in the end times? What is it that we can look at biblically and recognize to say that we're in the end times is correct? Culturally, what are some of the signs of the end times? And how should Christians walk as a result? Because that's the key, folks. We don't lose hope. We don't walk in fear. Do we? I would hope not, because we know that the Lord is with us, and no matter what happens, we know that he's in control. He's sovereign. Biblical signs of the end. I love some of these verses, and I think they're familiar to you for the most part. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. I'm just going to give you a bit of a sporadic, spontaneous, kind of coordinated attack on this thing, Okay. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, he says, In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son, meaning the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. What's interesting here is the last days. Now, what does he mean? Because he's writing this almost 2,000 years ago. Is he, is he saying that at that moment in time, they were in the last days? And I think the, the answer is, in effect, Yes. The Grace New Testament commentary puts it this way. What time did Paul mean? Because we don't know whether Paul wrote Hebrews or not, but this is used throughout the epistles, certainly where Paul wrote. He says, most likely Paul meant the entire church age. They were in the last days then, and we are now as well. So to say that we are in the last days is absolutely biblically accurate. The church age is the last days. And I would suggest that we are in the last of the last days. The imminent return of Christ. I believe that he could come any day, folks. We are not to be caught off guard. We are not to be caught as those who do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ because we know that he will come like a thief in the night. But as believers, we are looking and awaiting expectantly his return. And as a result, we are living day by day in light of that. Well, in the last days, what are we going to see? We're going to see people follow after false teaching. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and following, Paul writes this, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. My goodness, do we not see that today. If it was in that day, it's intensified. The confusion, the demonic doctrines that are being purported as being from God are rampant. They're everywhere. 
there will be false teaching in the last days. There will be those who have a form of godliness which have no power in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and following. Paul writes to Timothy again, and this is the last letter that Paul wrote, so everything in this particular letter takes on a special significance because this is, this is Paul's last communication. And the things that he highlights in this particular letter are essential. He says, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. Wow, what a list. Anarchy. Moral anarchy. We see it everywhere. We see it in the breakdown of the family. We see it even in how kids treat their parents. We see it in society as a whole. Everybody's rights, everybody's entitled, everybody's a victim. We see the activity of gossiping and all the rest. It's indescribable. 2 Peter 3.3, Peter writes this, Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Mocking. Making fun. Disparaging, and I would suggest the context here, disparaging the very word of God. A form of godliness with no power. Religion with no transformation. A verbal acquiescence to some kind of a standard, but with no power or strength in the midst in order to accomplish the very standard that somehow is stated as being that which should be followed and then is imposed on everybody else in order to lift those up who say, that they are following or walking according to that standard. No power, no ability. Religion, folks, is rampant, and we see it in all kinds of different forms. Human secularism is a religion. It is a religion, and it's everywhere. We see it in all kinds of different denominational heresies. And folks, in that sense, we are besieged. But yet we do not lose hope because we know the end. And we know that God is strong and mighty and victorious. The spirit of the Antichrist is certainly a biblical sign of the end. Lawlessness. False religion. 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 through 19, he says, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared from this. We know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they all are not of us. Many people that would claim to be Christ, claim to have a form of godliness, claim to be a savior, 
And the truth of the matter is they're not worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. They're worshiping some Jesus that they've created in their own image, some false doctrine that deceives many. Signs of the end times. Lawlessness, the Antichrist. Many Antichrists have come. The end of the age. Jesus speaking to his disciples about the end of the age in Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse. And he gives a rundown of this. And it's interesting because in the midst of this, he's speaking, I believe, of the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel, the seven-year period of time that we call the trib that involves the tribulation the abomination of desolation and the great tribulation. And in Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 and following, says this, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes, but all these things are merely the beginnings of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Now, I've heard that used in all kinds of different ways, haven't you? I've heard that used to manipulate congregations, that if we don't get the gospel out and the X amount of different uh, tribes and nations have never heard the gospel and we can speed Christ's return up if we will just get the gospel out there because he's not coming back again until the gospel is proclaimed to every nation. I like what Warren Wearsby says on this because I think he's absolutely accurate. He says, worldwide preaching in verse 14 of Revelation 7, 1 through 8 teaches that God will choose and seal 144,000 Jewish evangelists who will carry the kingdom message to the ends of the earth. This verse does not teach that the gospel of God's grace must be spread to every nation today before Jesus can return for his church. It is the Lord's return at the end of the age that is in view here. Wow. That's a bit of a rocker, isn't it? He's talking about the tribulation. He's talking about the time of, of absolute judgment upon this earth and the gospel of the kingdom being proclaimed in the midst of the tribulation. Folks, I believe the Lord Jesus Christ can come back today, and anybody that says he can't come back today using this passage, I believe, is incorrect. He can come back today. And the question is, are we ready for him? Are we ready? How are we living in light of that? How are we living in such a way as to say, come, Lord Jesus, take your church. We're ready whenever you are. And in the meantime, <laughs> we'll keep following you, walking with you, trusting you, loving you, submitting to you. I think it's interesting in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 and following, one of the messages to the church is the church of Laodicea. How do we know that we're in the end of the end of the end? I, I would suggest to you that the churches and the messages to the churches have in effect a threefold role. 
Number one, they are a specific message directed towards that specific church. Ephesus, Smyrna, etc. Here, Laodicea. Secondly, there is a statement made by the Lord to each of these churches that then encompasses every believer in every age and every stage of church history. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not just at that particular moment in time, but all time. To Hoffmantown Church, these messages to each of these churches have relevance, and we need to be careful to listen to what the Lord has to say. So there's two. One is to the specific church. The other is to all who would listen to what the Spirit has to say to all the churches. I would suggest that there's a third. And I won't be dogmatic about this, but I think you can look at church history and recognize that each of these churches and the messages to these churches represent a stage of the church within history. And Laodicea being at the very end it strikes me that we are at the very end of the end. If the church age is the last days and Laodicea is the depiction of the last of the last in terms of church history, then we are at that point. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who is an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Folks, these are believers that are being given a message by the Lord himself. They had gone astray. They were not walking in fellowship with Christ. They are lukewarm, meaning they are useless. Neither cold nor hot. Cold does not depict uselessness. In other words, well, we want to be hot. We don't want to be cold. No, no, no. What he's saying is cold or hot. Cold has its value. Anybody like to drink lukewarm water? I'd rather have either cold water that's refreshing or hot water that's refreshing. He's saying simply, cold and hot are good. You're neither. You're lukewarm. And as a result, I want to spit you out of my mouth. That does not mean that you will lose eternal life. It means that what he's saying is you're not walking in fellowship with me. You have gotten astray. You have taken me out of the picture. And as a result, you are useless. 
Verse 17, he says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, there's a three-part issue here. First of all, the answer is in 18. The refined gold, what is it that he say, says to do? You say, I'm rich, you have become wealthy, you have need of nothing. The reality of it is what he's saying to this church is stop depending on your own wealth and own resources and start depending on the resources of Christ. You say that you have everything, but you actually have nothing because you're not even walking in fellowship with me. And as a result, the question is, what do you need to do about it? Buy from me gold that's been refined. What does he say? You're naked. He says you are walking in shame. What does he say to do about it? He says to have white garments. In other words, the righteous acts that we ought to be walking in as we follow the Lord with the right motive. Not just doing things to do them for ourselves, but rather walking with the Lord in the righteous works that he's planned for us, as Paul writes about, before the foundation of the earth. And lastly, what does he say to him? You have become blind. You need eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. What is he talking about? He's talking about getting into the word of God so as to see clearly. See clearly. If Laodicea is the church that reflects the age of church history that we are in today, then there are three, in effect, messages to us. Number one, stop depending upon our own resources as if we have something to offer or that we can depend upon anything other than Christ himself. Let's depend upon the Lord. Secondly, walk in the righteous works of Christ with a right motive not our own motives, not for our own benefit, not because of the hook involved, not for any other reason than because it's for the Lord. And thirdly, get into the word of God so that we can see clearly and make sure that we're actually following the Lord. How do we know these are believers? Because he goes on and he makes it very clear that those whom he loves, he reproves and disciplines, therefore be zealous and repent. In other words, I love you, and I'm telling you this because I love you. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Get right with God in the midst of this. In verse 20, he gives us one of the great pictures that, again, has been used in a way, and I think I've done this myself. It's used evangelistically. And there's no question that the Lord wants to come into somebody's life, and there's no question that the Lord constantly is offering salvation and that he wants everybody to be saved. There's no question about that biblically. This is not the passage to, to use in order to establish that. This is speaking to believers. And what he's saying is, I'm standing at the door. You've kicked me out of the church. Let me back in. Submit to me. Yield to me. Walk with me. What a beautiful picture of God's love and his mercy and his grace. Because he doesn't ever give up. He pursues and he loves well, folks, I think these are biblical signs that we're in the end times. There's others, many. One that's always struck me as being very relevant to our day, and that is that there would be, 
an inordinate desire, an inordinate affection. Paul tells Timothy that in the last days uh, they will have inordinate desire. And that word I used to think was the idea of homosexuality, but it's actually the idea of family love. The natural affection, the God-given love for a dad to his kids or a, a mom to children. For a family to love one another, there will be the breaking down of the family in such a way that it will not exist. It will not be as God intended it to be. Boy, do we see that everywhere today. We see that in the murder of this precious little girl not long ago. I mean, we, we, we kind of listen to that story and we think, how could a mom allow that, promote that? Signs of the end times, folks. It's evil. It's what it is. It's rampant. But what about the cultural signs today of the end times? Where do we fall on the issues such as the value of life marriage or the traditional family and the way that God defines it being under attack. The church or religious freedom, freedom of speech that we have in our constitution. The constitution itself is a founding document desired by some to be rewritten to reflect our day. Nuts. The Supreme Court and the setting of the direction of the view of our constitution and the law for decades to come. Israel and our support of Israel. Folks, this is a glimpse. This is a glimpse. Let me just say a few things for you. I'm not going to tell you how to vote. I think this 501c3 thing is a nonsensical way that the government has tried to control pastors from the pulpit in influencing congregants. And I would suggest simply this. That when we talk about biblical values and biblical truth, all of us ought to be in the Word of God in order to understand what the Word of God has to say about life, about how we're to walk in it, about morality, etc. And as believers, there's no question that we ought to be voting for people that reflect those values. That goes without say. And I think, amen. I understand that in our day and age, this particular election cycle, we are in one interesting moment, and I could use all kinds of words to suggest that one. Amen? <laughs> so let me just say a few things to you. You take it and you pray through it. You have to vote your conscience. We must stand with those who, however imperfectly, do not represent all that we would believe in or agree with. However, they do represent as close as possible our biblical values. I think there's no question about that, folks. There's a bigger picture here than any one candidate. Politics, for me, is, is really not something too complex. Some people want to make this so complex. And they love getting into all the nitty-gritty of it. It becomes life to them. Christ is our life. He's on the throne. We're not voting for a spiritual leader per se, though we would want them to be spiritually minded. Amen? I mean, my goodness. I would certainly hope that the President of the United States would be somebody who recognizes that there is an authority far higher than themselves 
and that they would seek God for wisdom. No question. We are voting, in effect, for a person who is best able to carry forward our constitutional rights and responsibilities and or who represents those who pledge to do so. Folks, when we talk about biblical values, we talk about the rule of law, etc., we, we are, in effect, voting for somebody who's going to uphold the law of the land, and that law is placed within the Constitution. So we are looking for somebody who, in effect, is going to uphold the Constitution. That's pretty simple. Most importantly, we are voting for a person or party who represents as closely as possible our biblical values. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Come on now. Both major candidates, and I say major candidates because there are other candidates, but major candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, along with their respective parties, have made very clear their stand on the issues. And I would suggest that what I want to deal with is biblical issues, the values that we hold as absolutely non-negotiable of life, of life. Hillary Clinton would literally allow abortion at any point during a pregnancy, including for that child to be born and killed if the mother so chooses. That is unacceptable, unacceptable. <laughs> of traditional marriage, there is a mocking of God by the redefining of his definition of marriage. Folks, that is unacceptable. Unacceptable. There is the redefining of gender. These individuals that would do this have become reprobate by promoting the sinful desires of some who want to change the gender that God has given to them at birth. That is unacceptable. We cannot allow it. Of the rule of law as established by God. Governing officials are to be servants of the people to do good, to uphold the law. The lies, the abuse of power, the using of government officials in order to cover and obfuscate, to detract, to break the law is unacceptable. Of Israel. This deal with Iran, folks, leads clearly to a path for the Iranians to have a nuclear weapon. Anybody that believes anything other than that, pull your head out of the sand. The $1.7 billion given to those who support, promote, and actively are engaged in terrorism throughout this world 
is unacceptable. Both candidates, Hillary and Donald, have, along with their respective parties, made it clear what their stand is on these issues. I will vote. <laughs> Not to vote would be an absolute abrogation of our civic duty, as well as the opportunity to elect moral individuals into office. <laughs> Folks, we must vote. And let me just say this, because I understand this. I understand that there is deep concern. I've read articles by Wayne Grudem, and I've read all kinds of different articles on this, and people are wrestling deeply with the choices of the candidates that we have. I understand that. But I will not vote for anyone who does not have a legitimate opportunity of winning, because to do so, in effect, in my mind, invalidates my vote. What am I gonna vote for? Maybe sometimes we get into what we're not gonna vote for, but maybe we need to talk about what we're gonna vote for. I'm voting for the candidate and the party who represent, who have a legitimate shot at winning the biblical values that I hold dear. And I would put it this way. I'm voting for the children whose lives are being threatened because of what others declare to be their rights. Folks, abortion is a scourge on this nation that is unacceptable and we cannot allow it to go on. I am voting for all those throughout the world who are endangered by radical Islam and other evil rulers or systems, Christians and Muslims alike. Because to stand back and not stand for the truth, to cower in the face of an enemy that would send children with bombs into areas to blow themselves up is unacceptable. It cannot take place. I'm voting for our nation and the rule of law because it is essential that we uphold the Constitution and the laws of the land. God has given us government in order to do good we are to pray for our leaders. We are to follow the law as long as that law does not directly in any way, shape, or form deflect from God's laws. And folks, I'm voting for the nation and the rule of our law. And as a father of two millennials whom I love more than my own life, I am voting for our future generations to live in a free, viable society where they have the opportunity to speak, worship, and live freely. I could say a lot about this. I hope you get the point. And I would suggest this. Uh, Tim Hale is going to put together a voter's guide in terms of where do the candidates stand, and it'll cover a lot more issues than what I just went through. But folks, not to vote is a vote. And I would suggest to vote for somebody who does not have even the remotest opportunity of winning. You have to vote your conscience, and I 
totally trust the Lord in that. That's something between you and God. I've had conversations with people about this, not putting you down, but in my mind, this is far bigger and this is far more important than one candidate and the indiscretions of one candidate. This is about our nation and the rule of law. What are Christians supposed to do during these times? Let me give you four things quickly. First of all, we are to stay awake. We are to keep watch. First Thessalonians 5, 6, he says, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. The idea is don't fall asleep. Stay awake. Keep watch. Understand the times. Stand for truth. Stand in the power of Christ and in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love what the Grace New Testament commentary says about the word for sleep here. He says, this word refers to moral lethargy. Let us not sleep is an exhortation to be morally alert in light of Christ's soon return. We are in the end times. The Lord could come back at any moment. We are not to be asleep. We are to be alert. We are to be sober. We are not to be lethargic morally. We do not go home and just shut the garage and act like everything else is going to be okay because we're fine in our living room. We do not come to church and say, well, somebody else is supposed to do this. We have to stand together, and we have to stand strong, and we have to stand upon the Word of God in the grace of Christ, depending upon the Lord Jesus Christ, in order to give us the very energy and strength and wisdom that is necessary to walk in these very evil days. We must stand with the Lord in the midst of this and with one another. There's no question about that. We are to walk in faith and love and hope. Later in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 8, Paul writes, but since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. To walk sober. To walk in such a way as we recognize the times and we have not fallen asleep. We are morally astute. We understand what's going on around us. We are not taken off guard or by surprise at what's going on around us. We are not shaken from our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We put on the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, our hope of salvation, and we walk in it, we stand in it, we acknowledge it, and we trust God with the results no matter what may take place in the midst of it. That's how we're to walk as believers. We are to be in prayer in 1 Peter 4, 7. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. For what? The purpose of prayer. Folks, I want to encourage you. Come next week. You know what? One of the greatest fears of a pastor is they call a prayer meeting and nobody shows up. It's indescribable. Really. I've probably been one of the people that when a pastor called for prayer didn't show up, so I'm not going to shoot at you, okay? It's time to get into prayer, and it's time to do it together. I appreciate Tim so much and his heart for this. 
next Sunday night, the Sunday night after that, the time right before the election, we must be in prayer. We can never count God out of these things. God is in the midst of it. He's sovereign over it all. And whatever he chooses to allow, we know that he already has the victory. We're not trying to attain victory. We're walking in it. We know that we're in the end times. Did we think it was going to be easy? In the midst of it, guess what? We have the great privilege of experiencing God. Wow. What a privilege. Prayer. What time is it next Sunday? What is it? Four, that's during the Dallas game, man. Come on. I got to pray about that. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Lastly, don't give Satan a foothold. Don't give Satan a foothold. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be of sober spirit. You getting this sober moment? Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Folks, we've got to walk with Christ, which means we've got to learn to die to self. Anybody think that's easy? It's not easy. But in our day and age, it's so necessary. You know, the world is looking for believers who are willing to stand, who are willing to walk soberly, who are not falling asleep, who don't just have a form of religion, who don't just declare a Christ that is inept, and has no power, but rather declare a Christ who has come into their lives and is changing and transforming their lives in a way where the fruit of Christ is being revealed, and that fruit is love. Not only love for God, but love for one another, and love for those who would even persecute them. Because that's our hope, folks. That's what we have in Christ. We need to be in prayer, yes, but we need to stand firm in the grace in which we were called. And we need to stand in such a way that we're not pointing to ourselves. It's not about us. But with kindness and gentleness and humility, we are reaching to those who are hurt. We are reaching to those who perhaps don't have as much as we've been blessed to have. We are reaching to those who would even strike us because Jesus Christ went to the cross and gave his life for all of us. How are we walking? Are we sober in the spirit? Do we understand the times? And are we willing, are we willing to follow Jesus outside the camp, to be persecuted, to be laughed at, to be mocked for the great name of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. That's the question. Thanks for listening to the Hoffmantown Church Podcast. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. Everyone has a story. Please tell us yours. Visit www.hoffmantown.org and click on the Tell Us Your God Story link on the homepage to share yours with us. Thanks for listening to our podcast, and we hope you will join us next week.